Hello, I'm Anthony Santa. I'm Dr. Michael Smith. And this is Fusion Health Radio, the health, lifestyle, and mindset podcast. Episode 17, How Healthy Is Your Brain? Welcome to Fusion Health Radio, your source for inspiration, information, and insight on what it really takes and what really matters on your journey to abundant health. Hello and welcome to Fusion Health Radio. If you're a loyal listener, thanks for coming back and thanks for tuning in if this is your first time here. I'm Anthony Santa in studio today with Dr. Michael Smith. Michael, how are you today? I'm doing pretty good. Good. For the sake of our listeners uh, who've not heard your voice before or don't know too much about you, who are you and what do you know? Uh, well, I practice integrative medicine. Uh, I do that by combining the leading edge sciences of functional medicine and nutritional medicine with the vast experience and wisdom of traditional Chinese medicine. Uh, this is my 20th year of practice, so that's pretty cool, although I feel suddenly old saying that. And uh, as a patient, I have colitis, uh, Crohn's disease, and COPD, which is why I sound like a blues singer. Um, I'm actually very healthy in the sense of, uh, you know, if you met me on the street or whatever, but that's what my health journey has been about. And that's probably where a lot of your, uh, your passion and education has, uh, come from to in- heal yourself and, and teach that to other people, I think. Yeah. And as grateful as I am for the help I've had with, uh, Western medicine or what we've come to brand as the pharmaceutical people. Um, they didn't really give me a lot of very proactive help. There was sort of more like a self-defense class. So I've, you know, spent the last 20 odd years trying to learn about all this stuff, especially autoimmune disease, which has helped me help me. But more importantly, of course, with the respect to the podcast, it helps me help a lot of other people too. There you go. You got sick just so I could sit down here in front of you today. Can <laughs> <laughs> we get a time machine and work that out? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there might've been some kind of flaw in that mouth. I'm not sure, but uh, I appreciate being able to sit down with you. As far as I'm concerned, um, I don't really have an official introduction. Uh, Michael and I have talked about me actually finding a better way to introduce myself to the podcast, and uh, the best that I think that I could come up with uh, was uh, way back in 2005, 2006, I got really frustrated with how my guts uh, weren't working. I decided to ask Dr. Google to see if he could help, and uh, found a few health educators at that time who introduced me to the whole idea of uh, diet and nutrition being a good thing. I got inspired at that time to set up a Twitter account and start talking to people tweeting to people about all the things that I had learned. Uh, truth about food is who I am on Twitter. Combine all of that um, desire for learning how to improve my health with my uh, professional background with uh, marketing and photography and video and podcasting and broadcasting and all that sort of stuff. And I guess uh, you get somebody here today who's actually capable of keeping up with Michael as he talks about health and asking questions to help him make it clear. Today's podcast is uh, How Healthy Is Your Brain? And this is, uh, I guess, part of a series of brain-related podcasts uh, that we're doing. So before we get too far into today's episode, do you want to give us a recap of what we talked about last time, Michael? Uh, Yeah, we just sort of introduced the fact that your brain is not as uh, separate from the rest of your physiology and your body as most of us are aware, as well as the... You know, I think we both had that kind of aha moment probably halfway through the podcast where, you know, it's so easy to... Uh, not recognize that we take advantage or uh, we take our brain for granted. You know, if you can wake up, you can go to work, you can do your taxes and, I don't know, talk nice to your friends, you just naturally assume my brain must be fine because I'm fine. And uh, that's not always the case. And or we don't really notice the changes in the health or structure and function of our brain uh, often until the symptoms are pretty severe. 
So we just chatted about all the different things that are going to impact your brain from, you know, diet to stress to, you know, some tricky things around metabolism and hormones. And that is um, a pretty comprehensive uh, podcast. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd say I certainly learned a lot, um, <laughs> even just saying the title, hello, I am your brain. <laughs> that was I think that was the most fun part of the whole podcast, yeah. really. <laughs> well, think about it, you'd probably say, I am my brain, but it's more fun to say I'm your brain. <laughs> I am your brain. And I think you'd mentioned something about the seasons, did you not? Yeah, I like the idea of uh, a contextual relationship with any kind of process. And uh, when I say process, it's the idea that, you know, if you were to do a cleanse, you were to do a fitness uh, reboot or whatever, it's naturally going to have a progression, you know, step one to step 10 or whatever. Uh, but it's really nice, I think, when you're looking at something as, I don't know, foundational to health, but uh, as sort of mercurial or mysterious as your brain, to give it a, I don't know, a container. And what better container than nature? So here we have the, you know, from, I guess, the medicine wheel tradition, uh, we have these four seasons, which turn into four directions or opportunities to, you know, learn about life or heal. So I thought I would use that as a platform to talk about the brain, you know, so in the sense of uh, the first one we're going to talk about is going to come from the West. And traditionally in the medicine wheel, that just has to do with, you know, health of the body, you know, kind of the, the basic thing, as well as the introspective aspect of being here. Um, and then the next one we're going to talk about is going to be in the context of winter and then spring and then summer. Cool. And remind me again, was there a season for the last podcast? Uh, no, that was the crazily more thorough than I had actually <laughs> thought <laughs> okay. um, introduction to the whole thing. So this is number one of four. I guess before we get into the, the, the topic today, um, I mean, I'm curious. I'm always curious to know why it is you're curious about things. So you want to do four podcasts about brain stuff. Mm -hmm. Why? What is it about brains that really gets you going? Well, I mean, I guess I've uh, married myself to podcasting. You okay. Know? So, <laughs> Anthony, <laughs> will you marry me? Uh, sorry. In the sense that I really, really enjoy listening to podcasts. You, you notice people's. I didn't answer very right. I, 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 I was just <laughs> watching what we're going to do with your pen there for a minute. <laughs> so, having, becoming a, a kind of a fan uh, or a consumer, uh, let's say a fan, of other podcasts and, and how much they enrich my life or inform me about my work or excite me about play or whatever's out there and kind of landing in the canoe of this podcast and saying, yeah, this is actually a really meaningful thing for us to do together. And it's fun. It's enjoyable. I like doing the prep and the research and I'm beginning to enjoy the editing. <laughs> Although I still, as everyone I'm sure on the planet experiences, never, no, no one likes this out of their own voice. Once again, you notice I didn't say anything. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just leave that because <laughs> I could go a few different ways. Anyway, so um, when I sort of made the commitment recently that I really want to do like probably, you know, probably at least a couple more hundred more of these, uh, I thought, well, let's maybe take a subject and use it as uh, an opportunity to play with the balance you know, of information, of in-depth detail, of, you know, how things work and also what you can do about it, you know, in the sense of what you can learn through radio while still being ethically and medically responsible in the sense of not telling people to just start choking down, I don't know. X, Y, or Z. Yeah, some some really new, potent, cool thing. Mm -hmm. um, but again, to find that balance between the, 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 the information, uh, the in-depth, and then the, the practical, so, you know, knowledge is power, but also knowledge out of context can also make us kind of like hypochondriacs. And I was at a conference a while ago 
uh, with a bunch of people who are in the sort of the same health, fitness, lifestyle mindset uh, space in the in the sense of social media and podcasting. And I would say 60-70% of us at one point in the, the weekend together were all kind of kind of looking down at our feet going, you know, the stuff we do is meant to really help people. But sometimes the questions we get back really let us know that we have to be careful because people, they're, they're not really getting something or they're really afraid or their, their relative is particularly ill. Um, they get all afraid, like, oh my God, it's gluten. It's everything in my life and my family and my karma and my <laughs> five generations of what's wrong in my family. It's all gluten. And, you know, they, they, the tendency to overly rigidly grasp onto an idea with apprehension and with expectation of some magical result um, isn't actually that, I don't know, of service to people. So I want to make that kind of like an experiment, you know, so let's go as deep as makes sense, uh, as practical as is safe to communicate through a medium like podcasting, and try and make that commitment with the listener, which is, okay, let's just step back and be objective and curious and patient. And, you know, if an idea really touches you because it sounds like you, give yourself a few days to sit with that idea, do some Dr. Google researching if you need to send us a question directly before you go and commit to some, you know, really intense, um, I don't know, cleansing program or therapeutic uh, process or spend hundreds of dollars on a bunch of supplements that, you know, some supplement popped out of my mouth and you're like, that's for me. Because it, it's really important to just be aware that a lot of this stuff is very individualistic. I mean, we can only talk about the generalities really on, on something like a podcast. Absolutely. And I think um, if I understand what you're saying, it's, it's almost like that disclaimer that you see where, um, you know, consult your physician before you do anything. The mm -hmm. ideas that I get from whatever it is you're talking about inspire me to look further into whatever it is that I enjoy reading, which is tons of health-related stuff. I don't know if my library is as extensive as yours. <laughs> Listener, I'm looking across at Michael's library here. He's got three huge bookshelves with, I don't know, a couple hundred books sitting on them. Um, no, I, feel, and, I feel like a nerd here, but that's only half of them. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, there you go. I mean, this is your business. Yeah, right. <laughs> These are my microphones. We're even. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <clears throat> You bring your toys, I'll bring mine. Um, but the idea of actually learning things around uh, health and nutrition is kind of um, what I get uh, jazzed about. Once mm -hmm. I hear podcasts, health-related podcasts, it's almost like uh, this is a doorway uh, down that sort of uh, rabbit hole of information. It isn't the uh, the bridge for me to jump off of. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a really good bit of imagery for uh, the distinction, I think. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So um, now that we know that uh, you should take whatever it is you hear via podcasts, any podcasts, including this one, with a uh, pinch or a spoonful of salt. Um, what are we up to today? We're talking about uh, brain stuff, and that's kind of a theme that we've got going for four podcasts. Yep. Um, and the one thing I want to note as well, for the listener, for the per person who hasn't picked this up already, you have a, I guess, a, is it a Native American or Native background from Europe as well? Uh, so, yeah, my ancestry is uh, Dene. Uh, in the Western world, people call us Navajo, uh, but the Dene people go from basically as far north as you can go, like Tocteocto, down to like Arizona and New Mexico. And it's uh, just one big kind of happy family, although I think there's 70 different tribes in the sense of how the I don't know, modern world looks at us. Uh, my One of my grandparents is Sami from uh, Sweden. And they're the reindeer herders of Northern Europe. So they're considered the indigenous people of Europe. And they have a really interesting culture too. And this is kind of embarrassing in that context. And then I have a, 
my father's father is actually the descendant of King Athelstan from 980 in England. And wow. then I've got a slightly crazy uh, Irish, Welsh, other grandparents. <laughs> <laughs> why, why is my ancestry coming to your mind? Uh, just the comments you'd made before about uh, the seasons oh, uh, right. and the four directions around uh, around um, how we're talking today with brain-related stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and I want to get that clear in my mind. Right. I mean, it's a question I've been wanting to ask you for a while anyways. Okay. <laughs> well, yeah, and I guess two, uh, two uh, podcasts ago, we did the one on medicine wheeling and native wisdom with respect to healthy relationships. So. Yeah, absolutely. So again, if, uh, I'm always conscious of uh, the listener being the first time here, or if right. this is one that they listen to first, they should hear this. Um, and if you're somebody like me who's been sitting here for a whole bunch of times, <laughs> they should get reminded. So let's dig in today. Um, brain stuff, go. Go. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry, I just had this funny image for whatever reason, zombies wanting to eat brains so we can <laughs> have healthy brains. <laughs> okay. So uh, as if you're a return listener, we try and do some pantomime or thing with our hands to help us uh, learn about what we're doing because just listening is a bit passive and, and uh, the avalanche of new words sometimes can kind of bury us a bit. So if you're willing to, you can just take one or both of your hands and put them at the base of your head, uh, right where your skull attaches to the top of your neck. And that's uh, an area of your brain we call the cerebellum. Is that uh, the lizard brain? Is that what I know it as? Uh, that's a part of it. Lizard brains, brains more te technically kind of like your amygdala, but they're all, you know, that's pretty much core back. But it's you know, back there. Back there, yep. Right. And so that's the cerebellum in the sense of a kind of a lobe or structure of your brain. And then if you take your hand and bring it up about three inches, that's going to be your occipital lobe. And then you can use both hands if you want and put them just above your ears. And that's your parietal lobe. And then a little farther forward by your temples, obviously, that's your temporal lobe. And then if you put one of your hands like you're doing a Homer Simpson, oh! <laughs> <laughs> that's your frontal lobe. Just smacking yourself right in the forehead. Yeah, Or you could do it to somebody else and say you're healed. <laughs> <laughs> so that's just sort of the structure of it. So we're going to do that again. So you put the, the hand on the back of your brain, which is the... Cerebellum. Yoo-hoo, yay. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that has primarily to do with coordination in terms of gait or, um, I don't know, being able to do fancy movements like ballet or tai chi or something. And then if you bring your hand up a little bit, that's your occipital lobe. And it has mostly to do with visual acuity and the ability to differentiate color. And uh, interestingly, when we come to testing certain uh, brain dysfunctions, now you can go to this uh, specific kind of testing where you look at a whole bunch of different colors that are very close together. And if you do well, then you know your occipital lobe is okay. And if not, then we start looking at what might be going wrong there. Mm. And uh, bring your uh, hands above your ears, parietal lobe. Uh, it has to do with what's called tactile sensitivity, you know, in the sense of how well your hands feel things, you know, fine motor skills, tool making, and also being able to recognize shapes. Like you wake up in the dark, oh no, power outage, which is the lighter, which is the iPhone, which is the whatever. So, oh, this is so what being able to see your way through the dark. Yeah, with your hands, yep. Yeah. And then uh, a little farther forward is your temporal lobes, and that has to do with the acuity of your senses, uh, um, in a way, as well as your ability to distinctly identify smell. And uh, what would be the word? Uh, kind of like a sense of palate or um, emotional intelligence, if you will, around understanding the emotions that you're experiencing. Hmm. And then you bring it up uh, from there. Um, actually, I'll just, there's a couple more with your temporal lobe. Um, with respect to emotional awareness. And then there's also articulation of speech and just sort of a, an aspect of how, uh, how easily you can actually access certain memories and associate them together. So then we bring our hands up to our frontal lobe and the frontal lobe has mostly to do with reason, uh, the way you actually kind of 
are as a personality, uh, which is a really deep conversation by itself, and uh, a thing we call impulse control. These are five different lobes, yep. but um, okay, so I'm thinking about any time I've ever seen a brain, you know, TV, cartoons, whenever it is, I only ever see the left or the right side. So these lobes are just different pieces of those left and right sides? Well, that's a really interesting thing to bring up because, you know, the, what we call your left brain is more, in the sense of that part of the, uh, the cortex of your brain, uh, is more concerned with linear thinking and the right is more considered with sort of artistic associative thinking. But um, you could say that those aspects are paired in a way um, across the lobes uh, from back to front which balances the whole thing out. So the lobes are just part of those both halves then? Yeah. It's just like different regions of the brain? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, I, mean, I think if, if I was to put it in another context, I would say, um, let's say your left brain, where that distinction matters, is the masculine, and the right brain, where that matters, is the feminine, and the masculine and feminine are made up of the lobes that cross that part of the brain. Okay, cool. I, I guess I'm just getting hung up on the, the way I see brains in jars on shelves on TV and <laughs> cartoons and that sort of thing. So, um, so we've got the lobes of the brain mm -hmm. and where they're all at. Uh, what else? Well, we just went through what they do, and then I just want to talk about kind of what happens when they're not doing well. Right. So again, you can or cannot put your hand on your back of your head, and if you look at the cerebellum, if it's not doing very well, you're going to experience uh, vertigo. Uh, what's called visual nausea, which is another kind of dizziness that makes you feel like you're going to throw up. Um, it's basically a feeling like being car sick. And uh, there's a, um, a symptom we call extension tremors that happens when that part of the brain is in any way kind of degenerated. And um, it's a funny thing that when you're getting a DUI test, driving under the influence of alcohol, uh, that's uh, the coordination test they give you on the side of the road is actually a cerebellum test. Hmm. So that's a test that a, a medical professional would actually give somebody to see if that part of their brain is actually working well or not? Um, well, most clinicians that are trained in neurology will be observing all kinds of stuff um, just based on how you talk, how coordinated your tongue is, the muscles of your face, how you write, how you move, how the conversation goes. Um, I'll often ask, you know, <laughs> this is a you like I'm giving away some dark evil secret. Sometimes I like knock a pen off of the the table and kind of like oh and right in front of their foot and then I watch them pick it up and you can kind of read a whole bunch of stuff about what's going on in their brain based on that. Hmm. And then if you need to, you can pop somebody up on the table and bonk them with little hammers and stuff to to do a more uh, peripheral neurological exam. But it's uh, honestly uh, amazing and uh, how much you can tell by just observation. And one of my mentors, uh, Datis Karazian in uh, functional medicine neurology, who I like to refer to as Yoda, because he's like this amazing researcher-holic. Uh, he's also a teacher of doctors. So he spends about half of the year on, in airports, you know, traveling around doing seminars. And the stuff he talks about from what he sees watching people in different countries, you know, and he's like, yeah, Northern Europe, those people are really, really healthy. They eat a lot of fat. You know, this part of America, I'm really, really worried because all they eat is, you know, donuts and, you know, whatever and, mm -hmm. and uh, other countries. And I mean, he's just become, you know, the, the master of observing the neurological health of human beings because he watches just thousands of people meander in and out of bathrooms and kiosks and lineups and getting on in on and off of planes and well thanks to him for sitting in all those airports because uh, <laughs> we're getting we're getting the diluted version of that today so yeah. uh, so we'll just move to the next one cerebellum coordination yep so your occipital lobe 
again, doing a lot of having a lot to do with the vision, you're obviously going to have what's called poor visual recognition. You know, you, you hold up a picture of something and say, what do you see? Not necessarily like a Rorschach test where you're trying to like, you know. <laughs> the, the ink plot test, right? Yeah, the ink plot test, which we could come up with all kinds of, I'm sure, naughty imagery for people. Two, two spiders hanging up laundry. <laughs> I'm so glad you went there. <laughs> Um, and, and some people will see something and, and, and they can tell you what color it is, but they can't tell you if it's a cat or a dog. And then there's visual floaters, potential uh, hallucinations. And uh, one of the more cr uh, common ones is that kind of after image thing that happens if, if you see a bright light or you're, uh, especially for people driving down the road at night, that's a really big um call it a symptom if you will or a dashboard light car metaphor yeah. uh for the the occipital lobe because you know if you're driving at night you're going to pass by somebody especially the people who are too distracted to turn off their uh high beams and that's just going to like stay in your brain for like two minutes and it'll uh, almost stain your vision yeah that, that's a really good way to put it yeah uh, so again mostly about visual stuff and then a worst case uh, would be hallucinations and so that's our, we got our cerebellum, we've got our occipital lobe, uh, our parietal lobe, again above your ears, is a poor proprioception. And. Uh, <laughs> okay, so that's a 25 cent word. I was just I like, oh yeah. So everyone listening say proprioception. Proprioception. <laughs> so proprioception is a physiological attribute that we have. And um, it basically allows us to move through space. Uh, in three dimensions and actually know where all of our parts are. Hmm. And this goes back to that thing, well, my brain's fine because I'm fine, right? Right. And there's this whole, basically, the interior web of your brain, or of, your, of your body, that helps you do things like uh, dance, play, you know, do martial arts, sports, and things like that. And proprioception is the medical word for how coordination actually works. But it includes the self-protective mechanism, or all of the mechanisms that are built into how our species have adapted to movement and you know threat and challenge. And the example I use to kind of hopefully put that into perspective is: say you're walking down the street, and I guess I don't know here in Nelson, BC, where we live, uh, especially in the fall, there's always these acorns all over the place, right? Because they fall off the trees because yep. our city's full of trees <laughs> and squirrels. <laughs> And uh, say you walk off the sidewalk and you step on an acorn and you start to twist your ankle. The sudden stretching of the tendons and ligaments on one side of your foot uh, will send a nerve impulse to muscles in your hip and leg to suddenly self-paralyze for a tenth of a second or two so that your center of gravity will drop but take the pressure off of your ankle so you can hopefully correct your foot position before the weight of your body lands on your ankle again. So you said it a, a second ago, uh, proprioception is the mechanics behind coordination. Is that right? Yeah, but in, the w in a way that has to do with how cool dexterity is, but includes the self-protective mechanisms of millions of years of climbing and walking and running and you know doing all of that. So we have this kind of pre-programmed internet on how not to actually just keep damaging yourself. Mm. Although you get more extreme with sports and other things, uh, obviously you're just, you're trying to evolve in a snowboarding direction and you're going to have to, uh, you know, improve your proprioception based on the skill set you're working with. Right. Okay. So, um, cerebellum, occipital, uh, yeah. so parietal. We're still in the middle of the parietal lobe. Uh, so we got this proprioception, new word, and it's going to get, uh, worse when it's dark. So suddenly if there's a lack of, uh, what's called edge detection, uh, because of shadows and light and stuff like that, uh, it's going to make you feel even more uncoordinated. 
in the sense of, and the practical reason I bring this up is say you're a person who's pretty good at going up and down stairs in the morning, but in the evening, if you don't have a lot of lights on, you suddenly just have this weird lack of confidence. Man, I better be careful. I'm going to fall down the stairs. Hmm. Right. So when you start seeing stuff like that, um, and I've even seen people, uh, and I've had this experience once in my life where I actually walked around the corner, wanted to go down some stairs and actually just felt like I was going to stumble before I actually even started going in the stairs because my brain reached into the pool of proprioception and went fail. <laughs> <laughs> and that was this, I think we talked about this in the last, last podcast where I had a flare up of Crohn's and colitis and the inflammatory stuff was missing with my brain. And I, and then that propelled me to start studying neurology because all of a sudden I think all this weird stuff that made no sense. And that was one of the experiences I had, which was like, oh my goodness, I, I'm having, you know, my poor little, you know, melting parietal. So hang on. I'm reminded of the experience I've had. I can remember having it a bunch of times when I was a kid, uh, not so much as an adult, but uh, where I'm laying in bed and all of a sudden I have this sort of real spaz out because I feel like I'm going to fall off the edge of the bed, mm -hmm. but I'm not really near it. Mm -hmm. Is that proprioception in action, making sure that I don't? Uh, no, that's what's uh, called coming out of a hypnagogic state. Mm. So when we're awake, we're awake. When we're asleep, we're asleep. But in between the two, we have that state uh, where you're half asleep, half awake. And your kinesthetic memory, you know, from your day's misadventures or adventures, right. uh, is basically being written into your neural pathways. And uh, <laughs> I'm not saying you're anything like a dog, but I think we've all seen our, you know, lovely four-legged friends on the floor after a good day at the park. They lie down and within five, ten minutes of actually getting comfortable, they're twitching around like someone's, you know, giving them a taser. And yeah. that's their neurological proprioception re re revamping every time that they miss the ball or the frisbee or almost banged into a tree. Because the brain is always learning about new kinds of movement, new kinds of danger, new kinds of play. Mm. Well, that, that makes me think of uh, things I've uh, read or glanced at it on Facebook where they say, um, if you're going to have some kind of a training session, um, do that and then have a nap mm -hmm. and let the brain actually catch up to everything you yeah. just learned. That That's like probably the best advice I think I've ever heard mm -hmm. that isn't like, you know, nootropic or, you know, fancy chemicals that, you know, make your brain do amazing things. Right. So you get, you put all that information in, then you conk out for a while so that your brain has a chance to file it in the right spot. And I think a meditative practice would be, um, approximately the same opportunity. Yeah. I think of a lot of martial arts teachers that I've had in, you know, at the end of the class, uh, the teacher makes us all sit and meditate for like 15 minutes. And of course you're full of adrenaline and all the other stuff from bonking each other or they have swords or whatever we ended up doing. Um, but it's just that, you know, over thousands of years, people who train for that kind of stuff are like, yeah, well, the best thing you can do is learn a new skill and then sit still and let your brain get the wiring sorted out. Right. But it all sort of filter down to where it needs to needs to plug in. Yep. So we've got our cerebellum, we've got our occipital lobe, we've got our parietal lobe, our temporal lobe. If it's not doing very well, we're going to experience primarily a lot more insomnia. That kind of insomnia is going to be set off by any kind of noise. So say like the central heating of your house turns on and it's a little fan or something like that. That's, you know, familiar but subtle sound will pull a person out of sleep. Now that happens more commonly with to say people with a lot of stress or PTSD and stuff, but it's also a consistent symptom of people who are experiencing temporal lobe degeneration. And I want to be really clear when I say that, you know, get in the context of becoming hypochondriacs, your brain is always, you know, going between, uh, overuse in the sense of inflammation, degeneration and depletion, and then regeneration, just like any other system in your body. I think, you know, just to placate any sudden manic fear about, oh no. 
my brain it's used up it's broken it's gone it's like well it's 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 always doing what every other part of your body's doing so don't be afraid of your brain yeah. just give it what it wants <laughs> so b before you go too far with that the, the idea of uh being uh, affected by slight noises and um in another room um i know people who are light sleepers anyway um and then there's people like me who my girlfriend snores like the dickens and i just sleep right through it doesn't bother me at all so is that the, something around brain health as well uh potentially i mean as we learned in the f sort of introductory podcast is your brain is not distinct from the rest of your body and it's kind of the I don't know, I think for some reason it's not, I've never thought of this before, but it's like the youngest kid in your family, all the crap goes downhill and then your brain is like, oh, darn it. <laughs> Stop <Okay>. eating sugar. <laughs> right, okay. Um, so insomnia, erratic fatigue. Yeah, so yeah, that's another symptom would be the, um, you know, your for your temporal lobe, your, you know, uh, and this is impacted a lot by blood sugar issues and stuff like that where you're just now super sensitized to that and you could be, Every two hours, I'm exhausted, I'm alert, I'm exhausted, I'm alert. Uh, and lots of other things can happen. Probably the most direct uh, symptoms of temporal lobe degeneration for sure would be tinnitus, uh, diminishing hearing, sudden deafness, and um, really like intense changes in memory. And a uh, very quickly interesting uh, story, I was as I started studying neurology, the universe, of course, started sending me all these people with neurological problems. And uh, there was a guy who came in, um, stressful event, overdid it with partying and stuff like that, and suddenly went deaf. Hmm. And uh, this was like some about three weeks after that, and he had about 20, 30% of his hearing back, but then he'd lost a sense of smell and taste. So I'm like, I would have never thought of this as a neurological thing because I had no idea because I was what they call a neck down doctor <laughs> up until then. And uh, we got the inflammation out of his parietal lobe and a few other things, and within a few weeks, he was perfectly fine. And so that uh, condition that he presented with, was that because he got bonked in the head at the party or what? No, nope. he just over, I mean, stress can cause inflammation in your brain. You know, everybody's got a distinctly sensitive lobe or two in their brain. And I think it was just the, the stress and the, I think it was a divorce and then a bunch of drinking and then whatever else. And you know, he just woke up deaf, <laughs> which would be terrifying. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, other symptoms? Um, I think that's a deafness and poor memory. Hmm. So the last one is your frontal lobe. Again, we can Homer Simpson smack ourselves upside the head <laughs> <laughs> or your friend or your cat. And uh, you're going to see primarily just a sudden and noticeable loss in coordination. Uh, after that, uh, kind of brain fog and uh, the, the most common actual causes of things like anxiety, uh, depression, insomnia, the I don't know, depth of where PTSD goes, uh, that's all reliant on how healthy your frontal lobe is. And not to go too far into this all of a sudden, but I've mentioned this before, SSRIs or antidepressants we get from our pharmaceutical friends have never been proven to affect the serotonin system, but they have been proven to reduce inflammation in the frontal lobe of your brain. So that's super important just to, for anyone, you know, if you experience insomnia, depression, anxiety, PTSD, uh, things like that, um, start going on an anti-inflammatory diet and taking things to improve the health of your brain, especially the front of your brain. Another thing would be poor impulse control, yeah, poor memory, poor learning, planning, deciding, dancing in the sense of coordination, which is, we call, I mean, it's no, no surprise the frontal part of our brain is the new part of the brain. And, you know, we have a big one, wolves have an okay-sized one, dolphins, I think, have a bigger one than us, which makes me curious of someday trying to have a conversation with those guys just to see what's up. Yeah. 
Uh, actually, it was interesting. I had a patient this morning who had a car accident at eight years old, uh, damaged his brain to the point where he had a couple of strokes. <clears throat> and for most of his uh, youth and early adulthood, uh, he was being treated for all kinds of stuff because he had really like no impulse control. And they're, oh, it's ADHD, it's this, it's that. And it's like, no, he's got inflammation from a self-protective reaction in his brain due to being hit by a car. Okay, so hang on a sec. Let's just back that up. You said impulse control. When mm -hmm. I think of impulse, it's like um, I've got no ability to stop myself from eating the whole bag of chips instead of <laughs> just one or two of them. Well, I guess that's an impulse. The, the classic one is you just walk up to somebody you think is hot and you just start kissing them. Hmm. As if you've, you know, got permission and you know each other already. <laughs> right. Okay. And and that, um, uh, in this fellow you just spoke of, mm -hmm. his uh, impulse control, how did, or lack of it, how did that show up again? Um, well, just think of that kid in high school who just is completely relentlessly acting on whatever impulse pops into their head. Hmm. You know, start a fight, you know, same thing between boys and girls, uh, deciding to just tell your teacher exactly what you think about them or, you know, the principal's office. So look at, you know, you just see how that going down. Take Ferris Bueller and give him a hit of acid. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first <laughs> on Fusion Health Radio. Um, okay, so I, I get it. It's, it's kind of like um, no inside voice and no uh, no boundaries, uh, that sort of thing. Yeah. Hmm. But to the extreme. Well, I mean, it can to the extreme of, um, well, I think of, I mean, this isn't necessarily like a direct correlation, but... Uh, we've all probably had the image through media, movies, the news of somebody on PCP or something trying to take out five cops, you know, and they don't have any impulse control uh, or self-limiting belief about anything. Oh, I can take on the entire city. I'm invincible. And off they go. Right. Uh, Tony Montana in Scarface. Yeah. And then there's gambling as, as a, another issue. And I mean, it's interesting in the new DSM, um, which is the book we used to teach psychiatrists, the new classification around addiction is really, really weird. And the only thing that they actually will say in a very specific context around addiction is gambling. And that's, again, bringing this back to uh, health of the brain, something that is um, not wired properly mm -hmm. is a miss. Yep. Yeah. Neat. Um, so you've talked about the basic uh, functions. Um, and the basic syndromes. Mm -hmm. um, how does that actually present? Like if I'm walking down the street, um, I mean, I wake up in the morning, I look in the mirror, I can actually touch my nose and, you know, rub my belly and pat the top of my head or <laughs> the other way around. You know, I think my brain is actually pretty healthy. How does the rest of the, uh, the world measure up? Uh, well, I mean, this is the honestly terrifying thing in the modern world because of the stress we live in. Uh, environmental toxins, but especially diet. Uh, I'll just go through some modern statistics because I think that's the easiest way to give people sure. uh, something to wrap their arms around around where we're at. So here's some fun numbers about the human brain in 2016. Uh, right now with children, one in six of our kids is going to end up being autistic. 20 years ago, it was maybe one in 200. So uh, with respect to ADD, ADHD, it's uh, about 14% of boys, 5% of girls are likely to have that problem. Um, I'm going to throw this in because it's not technically a brain thing. It's an immune system thing. But there's a thing we always ask people about uh, when we're doing an intake around their, their childhood health. And that's, uh, you know, did you ever have really bad earaches as a kid? 
you know, were, were they ever treated with antibiotics. And that process, that illness is called otitis media, and it's the most common autoimmune condition with kids. It's the most common thing nowadays. The kids are referred to uh, to a GP or a specialist, and they, you know, here's antibiotics, now we're going to put tubes through your eardrums and all this other stuff to drain the pus out of your station tubes. And the reason I bring that up is uh, that kind of autoimmune dysfunction is going to have profound impact on the structure and function of your brain uh, while you're being passive-aggressively treated for the wrong thing around why you're having earaches. And uh, yeah, so that's 15% of children are going to have otitis media. Mm. And that predisposes them to everything else that can go wrong with your immune system and your brain. So just a little FYI, if you or someone you know is having or has had really bad earaches, go and see somebody who knows what they're doing and clean up the mess so it doesn't catch up with you later. Anxiety, at least 20% of adults experience uh, tangible enough kind of anxiety that they're doing something about it medically or recreationally or perhaps dysfunctionally or functionally around things like alcohol. Uh, depression, 10% of all adults are going to experience a major depression in their lives, uh, perhaps due to actual incident cause like death in the family or just because of burnout. Uh, 30% of all adults at some point are going to seek some kind of help, uh, around, you know, mild depression to low mood to, uh, loss of self-esteem or kind of giving up on the journey of life in some way. And, uh, let's see, if you took that 30%, there's about 75% of them that are actually having the symptoms of depression because of hypoglycemia and or adrenal fatigue. And that, that's a huge thing to be aware of. You know, if you're sitting in a doctor's office getting ready to uh, hand over your mental health to an antidepressant, remember, the only thing the antidepressant's doing is getting inflammation out of the front of your brain. And there's other ways to do that. And there's other ways to do that. 75% uh, of the time, you're sitting in the doctor's office waiting for your antidepressant prescription because you're adrenally exhausted or you have severely undiagnosed uh, blood sugar issues. And I mean, 75%, I mean, that's, that's almost a B plus or something <laughs> chance that it's not your mental and emotional health. It's a, it, it's a metabolic issue. All of these things that you're talking about here, uh, in terms of brain health, I mean, when I think of autism, I think about uh, conversations we've had either podcast or otherwise about, uh, gut health, mm -hmm. um, and how that's directly related. Um, ADHD and ADD just makes me think of, uh, what did that, what did that kid eat? Mm -hmm. Uh, was it red 40 right <laughs> uh, food dyes and yeah, right. they're um, right. you know neurotoxic uh, kind of things uh, I don't know about pastitis uh, anxiety certainly I know for me if I eat certain foods I get anxious and get mm -hmm. kind of all strung out um, it, uh, when you go through this whole um, list including depression it just makes me think that uh, as you said it a second ago you know the metabolic uh, cure mm -hmm. is kind of like what's in your fridge and how is that going to affect all the different things that are going on inside my head? Yeah, and that's the truth about food. Yeah. <laughs> A little plug there for Thanks. your Twitter account. Visit at Truth About Food. So other, other I think, interesting statistics is at least 25% of people are going to suffer from uh, one form or another of insomnia. 10% of people who have had any kind of really intense experience in life are going to have PTSD. 25% uh, of people experience addiction in their lifetime. And that's a big deal because the things we do around addiction, uh, besides the stress of that and the disruption to normal, you know, just life and happiness and, and self-awareness and self-respect, um, whatever we're addicted to is very likely going to be a secondary damaging 
um, insult to the brain. Mm-hmm. So don't recommend addiction at all. <laughs> Probably do a podcast or 10 on that. So uh, I'm just going to look at a really common, uh, frighteningly common uh, autoimmune condition called multiple sclerosis. Uh, the number of people I know in my life that have it uh, is not just patients, but just people I know fairly well. It's just like, wow, this is, it's really going around. Before, yeah. you, before you get into that, um, what is MS? It's an autoimmune disease that uh, damages the myelin sheath and other structures in the neurons of your brain and other tissues in your body. So I knew a woman when I was uh, living in Vancouver years ago who was uh, diagnosed with MS, but she was, I think, called something called an invisible. Yeah, there's a few different kinds. Yeah. And so um, in her, uh, every now and again, she'd be doing something and then she would just freeze. Like she just couldn't... Um, taking any more information she was almost kind of paralyzed by whatever it was is that kind of how ms presents in most people no um yeah i mean i've seen people with that kind of ms actually just like suddenly just phase out and like almost uh like they just fall asleep or they just go into torpor or something so here's a quote from the ms uh foundation so the ms foundation uh, estimates that more than 400,000 people in the United States and about 2.5 million people around the world have MS. About 200 new cases are diagnosed each week in the United States. Rates of MS are higher farther from the equator. It's estimated that in the southern states, uh, below the 37th parallel, the rate of MS is between 57 and 78 cases per 100,000 people. Right? Hmm. So, I mean, that's... A number and then the rate is twice as high in northern states above the 37th parallel so that's about 110 20 to 140 people per hundred thousand and the incidence of ms uh is higher in colder climates so the basically the farther you go north uh the more likely you are going to get uh, ms basically people of northern european descent have the highest risk of developing ms no matter where they live and native americans are particularly resistant to this condition yay <laughs> sorry <laughs> Go team. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, and again, it's an autoimmune <clears throat> thing, but I, I think it's just an interesting and obvious opportunity that if the statistics of something like MS are that distinct across latitude, or is it longitude? I don't know. North, north south. Um, that it's got a lot to do with vitamin D. So, a couple more uh, post concussive syndrome which is astoundingly tricky in terms of the brain, uh, is actually something that happens with around 10% of all serious concussions. So you get a concussion, and then months, years later, you're having weird neurological problems. So that um, football game where you actually got bonked in the head or something like that, it will actually come back and present itself again. Yeah, and there was a movie that just came out called Concussion about the, I can't remember his name, is Dr. Um, Darn it, I should have written out his name. Uh, it was played by Will Smith anyway, but he was this researcher who was working through the uh, football association trying to like figure out why all these ex-prize athletes were going crazy and killing themselves and all kinds of other stuff. And uh, yeah, I think that's called uh, TCE uh, or um, chronic uh, trauma encephalitis. And, uh, you know, that's a huge deal. But again, if you've had any kind of motor vehicle accident, snowboarding accident, martial arts accident, something where you've banged your head significantly, um, there we go. And I'm just suddenly reminded, 
in this moment of a rock falling accident I had. I was rock climbing and then I ended up rock falling and I broke all kinds of things and smashed my head because I wasn't wearing a helmet because I'm really smart. <laughs> and I'm just in this moment reflecting on, I wonder if that explains everything else in the last 25 years. Because <laughs> it could. Maybe you should talk to a doctor about that. <laughs> there you go. I need to start doing neurological tests on myself. Uh, and then there's Alzheimer's disease, which again we call diabetes type 3 because the biggest impact on it is excessive sugar and insulin. And that's 15% of people over 65, and it's actually increasing. Mm -hmm. And again, with all the statistics around the baby boomer population in the next 20 years being the most needful and abundant number of people, uh, it's possible that if anything's going to collapse our economy, that, that would be the thing that would do it if we don't take care of it. So please take care of your brain. <laughs> Mm -hmm. uh, and then there's brain tumors, which is approximately 70,000 people are diagnosed with a brain tumor every year. And, uh, you know, unfortunately with statistics, they're just the easiest to find uh, in the U.S. because they're just, I don't know, perhaps the sickest population on the planet or they just have really good PR. So in the sense of um, we're talking about, you know, how healthy is one's brain, uh, mm -hmm. how does brain health uh, compare to... I guess, overall health conditions? Like, is it um, the majority of things that are going wrong out there are things related to what's going on between our ears? Well, I mean, this brings up the the thing about being either a neck-up doctor or a neck-down doctor. So, so you're saying it depends who you ask? Uh, yeah, of course. And it also, you know, with a bit of chagrin, nudgingly suggests that maybe all clinicians should be both. Hmm. Right. In the sense of, if you don't know enough about neurology, then you're going to make mistakes. If you just know about neurology and psychiatry and have no idea about digestion and nutrition, please go back to school. <laughs> <laughs> Sign up now for Michael's Functional Medicine 101. Oh, that'll be about a year and a half away, but I am going to start teaching functional medicine. So, hmm, Very cool. Um, so again, it comes back to the idea that I had before, that brain health and overall health uh is totally related to diet and what's going on, whatever it is we feed our bodies to do mm -hmm. the things that they do. On your list here uh, of notes, you've got some ideas about uh, things to do for a healthy brain. Yeah, so I'll just preface that by saying uh, one of my 10 steps to abundant health is to start with the do's and then work on the don'ts. Hmm. Most of us look at all of our naughty habits and go, well, I should get rid of those before I can actually expect any kind of benefit or any kind of change in my health or my life. And that's somewhat true, but um, it's also much more importantly true that whatever your lifestyle is like right now, if you just start doing the do's, if that's eating better, if it's taking vitamins, if it's drinking more water, if it's getting more sleep, getting having more fun, whatever it is that's sort of lacking, by introducing those things that are going to improve your health to the degree that they can, will give you more confidence, more momentum, and more resilience as you try and get rid of the don'ts. And this is especially uh, not so subtly hinted towards people who have some pretty hard-to-change habits. So often when I'm working with people who have hard-to-change habits, um, that could be food addiction, drug addictions, other things, when they just start doing all the things they can to improve their brain health uh, and their digestive health and other things, lifestyle, their sense of self, but their physiological kind of, I don't know, huspa or whatever the word is for that, um, is sort of, you know, like chomping at the bit for change because like you feel the change, you feel the benefit. It's like, well, let's take this to the 
the man cave and, you know, dismantle the bar or whatever. <laughs> and then they had put in an exercise machine or something. Well, it's almost as if um, it's that law of physics. You know, the object object of rest wants to stay that way and an object of motion wants to stay in motion. So, you know, yeah. once, once the ball starts rolling, then all of a sudden it's like, hey, this is kind of cool. I yeah. like this. Yeah, nicely said. I have a, a relative who kind of goes in and out with alcoholism and depression and stuff like that. And uh, they eventually kind of came to me and said, you know, I kind of need to change this and, you know, I'm, I'm stuck and I'm going to go bankrupt and lose my family and stuff. And we started with the dues and it was doing okay and, you know, she was actually feeling pretty good. And then uh, I was doing all this research on neurology and stuff and I said, oh, wait, there's this thing you could try. It's really cool. It's called a vinpocetine. Uh, it's called a nootropic or it's something that actually really helps your brain with focus and awareness, but in a way that keeps you calm unless you take too much. And after three days of doing that, you know, I get this phone call going, I get it. I hmm. totally get it. It's all been about my impatience and my anxiety and stuff like that. And now I can sit here and think clearly and actually for the first time in my life, like do this goofy meditation stuff you've been talking to me about for 25 years. And it was just because we finally found the neuropathways that were just totally stuck. Hmm. Yeah, sweep out all the uh, all the dusty old ideas and and junk, and uh, allow the the good stuff to start flowing in the, in its space. Yeah, and I think I know, and I'm recognizing this is going to be a bit of a long podcast, but um, I mean, it's the brain. It's we we really need to invest some time to know what we're talking about uh, in the sense of the listeners uh, to make the decisions we want to make. And I just want to bring up that context again that your subjective experience of yourself is obviously based on the health of your brain. And if you feel like you are subjectively okay, you're going to make the association that your brain is perfectly fine. And that may or may not be true. When there's things you can do in the sense of, you know, start with the do's and maybe take things in terms of supplements that really affect the health of your brain, that sudden change in subjective sense of what it's like to actually really be okay, because now you're really like, whoa, I'm actually way smarter than I have been in the last few years, and I'm way more focused and way more relaxed. Then you're like, oh, well, so much for that subjective association of I'm okay, my brain's okay. Because when you start experimenting with the health of your brain and you suddenly become subjectively so much more alive as yourself, then you get that little check on the little box of, ah, you have to take care of your brain. <laughs> Big one. Yeah. So um, anyway, so that's the thing about the do's and there's some obvious stuff. In terms of diet and stuff like that, most people are going to get the most benefit of what I call an ice age diet, which is the diet our early primate ancestors uh, would subsist on when we were basically hanging out at the beach, swimming around looking for food over the last few million years. And also the subject of one of our previous podcasts. Yep. So if you want to go into that, it's the three healthiest diets on earth or the health notes. I think it's called the healthiest ways of eating on earth. We change the title a bit. Mm-hmm. So just imagine what your brain would uh, feel like if you ate like massive amounts of seafood all day, every day, you know, and they're healthy fish oils and they're anti-inflammatory oils and you're eating primarily a plant or sorry, protein fat based diet. Uh, but all of the fats are actually therapeutically uh, known to improve brain health and brain growth, right? So lots of fish good. And for those of you who are cringing, your toenails are curling in and you're <laughs> dreaming of Fukushima radiation and mercury toxicity, please try and be assured that if you're eating things like salmon and the kind of higher in the ocean fish, um, the, the modern statistics are you'd have to eat 200 pounds uh, in a year of that 
a particular fish to get the equivalent of a solar flare of radiation. So you're saying that fish is okay? Fish is okay, and there's enough selenium in fish to stop you from absorbing or binding the mercury that may be in fish. Just because I, I, I have this conversation probably five times a day when I'm having a busy day in the clinic, which is, I want you to eat lots of fish, and before you start freaking out about radiation and mercury, this this is actually, you know, the the microscope kind of view of what's going on right now. Hmm. Anyway, so there would be that, the Ice Age diet, or... Uh, what's called a ketogenic diet, which is a diet where you choose to run your brain on ketone bodies, which is a fuel source we get from fats, instead of on blood sugar or glucose. Because we all know, you know, your brain runs on between 24 and 70% of your blood sugar, depending on how stressed or focused you are. So you can actually run your brain on fat instead of sugar. And uh, we got into this on uh, that podcast on the healthiest way, way right. of eating uh, that... If you look at human history, most of our history was probably more of a ketogenic diet uh, than it's been a plant-based diet. Uh, and I think we're going to need to do a really thorough ketogenic diet episode because it's just something eventually we really need to like break down and give to people where it's, they can walk away and really apply it. Uh, but we're not going to have nearly enough time to do all that. Not today, anyway. But uh, it doesn't occur to me to bring up that if you look at uh, things like fat and cholesterol, which are gradually being allowed back into our cupboards because science has finally admitted they got that whole thing wrong for 60 freaking years. <laughs> uh, I mean, if you just look at the common sense, the, the structure of your brain is 60% fat and 25% uh, cholesterol. So uh, I don't think removing fat and cholesterol from your diet is in any way going to help your brain. And in uh, fact, so, so just based on that, does that mean, <laughs> let me just get that clear then. You're saying that eating healthy fats uh, is actually good brain food. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'll go back to the zombies thing, you know, the reason why they need to eat the brains is they just have, they're just too low fat. That's why, they, you know, they're all skinny and emaciated. I've never seen a chubby zombie before. <laughs> I get poor, poor proprioception too. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, they're just some common sense, you know, because, I mean, well, obviously this podcast is really just about helping people. Mm -hmm. So if there's any way we can just, simplest terms, if your brain's made of this, your diet should be made of that in some way, at least occasionally. <laughs> and so if, uh, fat doesn't make you fat. Uh, in fact, no. Well, I mean. And fat head is actually a compliment. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> uh, I, I'm compelled as the encyclopedia that I am to say that. Yeah, fat's not going to make you fat unless you get over 67% of your daily cal calories as fats and the rest of it's carbohydrate. Then the fats might make you fat. But that's the only chance, or the only uh, only way fat can make you fat is that's how you eat, which is really, really weird. So a few other things that your brain likes, uh, choline, uh, which you get from egg yolks and livers and uh, certain seafood and stuff like that. Uh, it's technically a B vitamin, um, but it's super, super important for building the the kind of a bank account of your brain around what's called acetylcholine, which is probably the most important neurotransmitter in terms of its general mental health. Uh, then there's all the amino acids that uh, turn into different neurotransmitters. You know, there's, uh, we all know tryptophan turns into serotonin. You know, you may know that tyrosine turns into dopamine. Um, and there's theanine, which is really good to just help people with, you know, getting, you know, nervous or agitated. Uh, and, you know, if you look at the structure of your brain um the adult human brain has somewhere of a hundred billion neurons 
doing what neurons do. And that makes up uh, about 8% of your brain. So just uh, do the math. If you've got, you know, 60% of the, well, I'll just, maybe I'll go back and say, if you were to take a brain, <laughs> okay. first thing you want to do is it's made of uh, 70, 75, 80% water. So if you had to sub subtract the water, then you're going to look at the actual structure of your brain because that's what's left. And that's true of every other thing in the world around, you know, nutrition or food. So uh, you subtract the water and then you go 60% of what's left is fat, 25% of what's left is cholesterol, and 8% of what's left is uh, proteins. And what's the what's the, what's left? Um, cobwebs. Cobwebs. Sure, I'll go with cobwebs. <laughs> Um, I can't actually say because um, I, I, I would guess probably things like collagen and other structural things that aren't effective in the sense of, you know, neurotransmitter function. They're more like, um, uh, I don't know, your shirt and pants of your brain or something. That's a pretty good analogy. Yeah. Yeah. Hold it all together. So other do's uh, of the brain would be uh, meditation. Sorry, for a healthy brain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is that, what did I say, for a bad brain? Well, just for a brain. Okay, yeah, for a healthy brain. Right? Although, although I, I, I suppose coming from you, that's <laughs> that's a given. <laughs> well, assume that I'm not giving you bad advice. <laughs> right. You know, and there's a lot of different ways that, uh, and research that meditation's actually been proven to affect the brain, and we're going to get into that on the the one that, you know, gets more into the North, which is the next podcast, in the sense of directly how meditation works. And we're going to share two or three real simple ways to move into a meditative experience. But uh, if you've never tried vitamin M, give it a try. I dare you. There you go. <laughs> if dare is help, and if not, I support you in the endeavor of meditation. <laughs> Depending on how you need your motivation. Yeah. And we've got meditation, then there's exercise, Asian. Because exercise is when you're thinking about it, it's one thing, but exercise when you're doing it becomes exercisation because you're doing something. <laughs> um, so I, I've heard you say before, exercise is equivalent to being a metabolic sunshine. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sunshine for me makes me just feel happy. Mm -hmm. And um, <laughs> so I'm sorry, trying not to sing the sunshine song. <laughs> this is where we splice it in. Yeah. Um, yeah, exercisation. Yeah, so there's exercise and there's fasting. And it's interesting that both exercise and fasting have a very, very similar positive effect on the brain because they improve uh, the amount of something called BDNF, or brain-derived neurotropic factor. BDNF, just for short, because <laughs> I don't want you guys to, you know, <laughs> get brain phlegm from too many big words. Um, Only got so many quarters in my pocket for all those words. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And... Uh, the BDNF is actually the thing that helps your body build neuro, new neurotransmitters and neuropathways. So if you don't have that neurotropic or build your brain factor, uh, the opposite is happening. Mm. And they both exercise and uh, fasting improve the BDNF through something called um, uh, nitric oxide. And there's a specific kind of nitric oxide that's good for you and a couple that are bad. And the one that's, uh, again, produced by you know, intense exercise to the point you're gasping or to the point where you're really having to, you know, tear down and repair your muscles and fasting, create the NOS that creates the BDNF that makes your brain repair itself. So you want to give your brain some love? Well, I'll see you at the gym <laughs> or I won't see you at the restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. So those are kind of a, a recap of uh, do's of a healthy brain, mm -hmm. uh, diet and um, exercise, exercisation. Don't I say that right? <laughs> Exercisation, medit 
meditation, fasting, uh, choline, aminos. Uh, what else is on that list? Uh, good fats. Um, what's on the other side of the coin? What are the don'ts? Oh, the don'ts. Oh, my goodness. Well, there's <clears throat> quite the list of don'ts. Um, the big one, I think, is stress. Hmm. That's it. We're done. Thanks for listening today. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, and I promised in the last podcast to explain how stress melts your brain. So this is what happens. When you have a lot of stress going on in your body, you're going to have a lot of stress hormones obviously circulating through your body, and that's going to affect how your brain actually does its business. Um, the first thing is uh, chronic stress is going to make people hypertensive, and that's going to affect your circulation, and that's going to affect the uh, transport of oxygen into your brain. And that's a massively important thing. And again, that comes back to oxygen and deep breathing and meditation too, uh, in the sense of the do's. Um, but again, with stress, that hypertensive change in circulation is basically starving your brain. Chronic stress um, is uh, called a lizard brain thing because it's fight or flight. And that's going to put an over-reliance on the, on the amygdala as a structure. And uh, you over-rely on anything, it's going to eventually start to break down. And then we end up seeing measurable degeneration of the amygdala. And that's actually something you see in all Alzheimer's patients is they just, it just shrivels up like a raisin. And interestingly enough, when you go on a protocol to repair that, it grows right back. Hmm. So for any of you that are like, oh no, it's too late, shuffle my feet, kick the rock. It's like, uh, no, uh, you know, there's degeneration, there's regeneration. And for most people, that's still possible. So um, in general, when you're under a lot of stress, your body's going to be in a more pro-inflammatory state, your immune system is going to be more aggressive, and those will actually cause tissue atrophy to your brain. I'm melting. Sorry. Melting, shrinking. The melting, shrinking brain. Um, as well with all that stress and inflammation and immune system dysfunction, it's going to affect the health and function and structure of your gut. And it can eventually atrophy too. And then the, the buoyancy or the bank account of uh, resiliency between the gut brain and the brain brain. You know, it's kind of like, I don't know, if there was a couple, one's the brain, one's the gut, and they share a bank account. And they're both, I don't know, gambling addicts. <laughs> and they're not talking to each other about their particular gambling issues. And all of a sudden they're both on and they'll line up for bankruptcy or something. Mm. So... One of the things that happens uh, in chronic stress and changes in, in your immune system is called dysbiosis. And dysbiosis is, uh, again, an imbalance in the creatures inside your gut. And with chronic dysbiosis um, and uh, some other factors, especially around bad food choices, and especially around alcohol, is we start producing more visceral fat. And there's a distinction between the fat that we build between our button, our belly button and our butt and the fat that we produce inside the actual visceral space of your body. And visceral fat is super, super uh, more dangerous and much harder to get rid of. I mean, it can be done. It just takes probably five times longer than, than just, you know, what we call adipose tissue. The scary part about visceral fat is it actually secretes uh, an immune system structure called a cytokine that basically just tells the rest of your body ninjas and terrorists and car bombs and aliens they're everywhere <laughs> everyone get guns <laughs> take take over local buildings and freak out you yeah. know in the sense that um that visceral fat by itself is just an engine i don't know i guess burning tires as an image comes to mind the smoke is just telling the rest of your body and your brain that holy crap red alert oh my god and that 
again ties into the whole um, stress factor, I think. Yeah, and then there's the there's sort of the feedback loop, right? So mm-hmm. there's stress, and then now your body's got burning tires of you know hormones and uh, immune system modulators and stuff like that, or not modulators, immune system antagonists. Uh, that those molecules or hormones and stuff just are a secondary thing that says, you're right, brain. Oh my God, it's it's World War Three down here. Do something, more fight or flight. <laughs> right. Get it together, hurry up. And we talked uh, in depth about uh, dysbiosis and that sort of thing uh, in the Therapeutic Enemas uh, podcast. Yep. Yeah. That's where I learned all about it. Yeah. So have you tried any? Uh, haven't yet. Okay. <laughs> it's, on the, it's on the list. <laughs> Too it's much not, information. It's not high on the list, but it's on the list. Yeah. Um, and then there's a thing called your hippocampus. Um, if it gets enough atrophy, it can no longer uh, properly inhibit the HPA axis. So HPA is hypothalamus pituitary axis, which is your stress kind of governing control system. But your hippocampus is sort of a regulator of that, you know, in the sense of it's okay, settle down, have a cookie, or maybe a cookie, maybe I'd have some beef jerky and <laughs> settle down. Uh, but if the hippocampus starts to uh, degenerate, then it can no longer send that calming message anymore. Uh, think of, I don't know, a really violent sport, MMA, and the referee just wanders off because he's distracted. That wouldn't be good. Well, depends on what you like to see in the <laughs> arena of death. But, uh, just, I don't know, I'm trying to keep the imagery going because this is a bit long and this may be new for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But it's fun. So also, obviously, cortisol being a stress hormone, uh, and this is true everywhere in your body, it creates... Um, basically a tendency towards being catabolic or making people uh, go into atrophy. And that could be muscles, it could be uh, fat, it could be nerves, or your brain. Hmm. Not much fun. Um, and this is a really important thing. You know, under stress, your body is in a state of degeneration or use up everything you can in the fight or flight, you know, life or death thing, even if it's just a divorce. Your brain can't tell the difference between divorce and tigers uh, or taxes or, I don't know, something. <laughs> something equally pressing that's yeah. getting you down. So when you're in that state of um, fight or flight, use up your resources to survive, there's a thing you can't do, and that's regeneration, right? And I use the, the metaphor often with people as, let's say, you know, we've decided to buy a house and we're going to renovate the house. You know, we move into the house first because we need a place to live. And then we decide to do the the renovation. And we take all of the furniture out, you know, take all the appliances out, put all the the contractors in there, and they set up all their tables and tools and stuff. And then we really walk up on Friday and say, oh, we want to have a party tomorrow. Do you guys mind getting everything together? And then they have to take down all the regenerative prep, put all the furniture and appliances back in, make it look like it's actually a house instead of a, you know, construction zone. And then, you know, we have our party and then we you know, have to go through all of the takedown of, you know, the house and then put in place all of the construction workers and then repair begins again. And if you actually looked at that as a, a an actual uh, direct experience, you would go from having seven days a week of repair on the renovation process to three days a week of actual renovations because the takedown of, you know, the repair, then the party, and then the takedown of the party, and then getting ready for repair would take more time, you know, going back and forth than it'd be worth. So that doesn't uh, sound very progressive at all. Uh, well, it's just to give people that thing about, you know, you're going to get way more out of 
any therapeutic protocol if you just commit, you know, days, weeks to maybe months, uh, unfortunately, in some cases, a couple of years to that process. Mm -hmm. But if you decide to have your cheat day or whatever, you may be getting less than half of the statistical results. Yeah. Huh. Uh, but it's interesting to see, uh, I mean, ultimately what you're talking about is the, uh, the brain actually heals itself. The brain's actually capable of actually, um, bouncing back. Yeah. And then that's, that's the point for sure. Hmm. So, I mean, another really strange thing that happens, um, uh, in the sense of stress melting your brain, um, is that if we stay in that state of chronic stress, um, it actually affects epigenetics in a way that shortens the little coat hangers that we hang our genes on called, uh, tolomeres. And, uh, when they're not able to do their job as well, the way we actually replicate our genes is less, uh, robust and potentially more prone to, uh, uh, basically expressing any illness you may carry a gene for because your ability to repair it robustly is no longer true. You're repairing it haphazardly, if you will. And I mean, that, I think that's the most dangerous thing we've touched on because if you start turning on a disease under all that stress, um, while your brain is melting and now you've got, I don't know, arthritis or something suddenly turns on, that's going to add to the, the stress and the physiology that's melting your brain. So again, please take care of your brain. <laughs> and there's a few other ones we talked about last, in the last podcast, um, which I'll just go through very quickly. Insulin is probably the biggest uh, insult to the brain because of uh, variations and in intense consumption of sugar and carbohydrates. So let's be clear, too much insulin. Uh, well, it's I think it's too much, and it's also the the erratic amount because there's too much in the sense of what we eat, and then there's, there's hypoglycemia of the insulin did its heroic job, and now there's no blood sugar, hmm, right? You know, and then we're we're walking around with too much, not enough, too much, not enough, and that makes the brain want to get a little hobo stick and you know crawl out of the back of your head while you're sleeping and run away, <laughs> <laughs> or some other kind of fun imagery. <laughs> And chronic inflammation is bad. Uh, again, like cytokines are just basically going to tell your whole body that things need to melt and there's no renovations happening today or tomorrow. And um, big one is just undiagnosed food allergies. And so it's about 75% of the symptoms of food allergies actually turn out to be neurological. And that drives most people bonkers because they come to a doctor who knows nothing about all this stuff. And they're thinking, I think I have food sensitivities. And they, well, do you have any bloating, gas, cramps, you know, diarrhea, you know, nausea, heartburn? And they're like, nope. They said, there's no way you can have food sensitivities. And it's just like, uh, okay, doc, I'll go back to eating you know, at McDonald's and yeah. whatever and uh, take more painkillers, anti-inflammatories and antidepressants. Thank you very much. I'll keep eating these peanut butter sandwiches. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> And pizza. <laughs> On whole wheat bread. <laughs> <laughs> Peanut butter pizza. Yeah. And then, you know, we had talked in the last podcast, uh, and the one on enemas as well about how certain bugs in your gut produce a lot of ammonia mm -hmm. that gets through the blood brain barrier. Certain bugs produce a thing called, uh, uh LPS or lipopolysaccharides that gets through the blood brain barrier. And, uh, when you're eating grains, grains produce this thing called zonulin when the, prolamine or the gluten-like structure breaks apart and that gets through the blood-brain barrier, all of which attack your brain and make you lose memory, concentration, focus, which is making your life more stressful. So, boom, there's the don'ts in a very rapid drive-by of why yeah. you well, should take care of your brain. You know, I, I'm, I'm left at the end of this uh, podcast uh, sort of thinking, um, 
That's a lot of information. Like the, the, I, okay, my health journey as I've experienced it in my lifetime, it's like I get up and I do my thing and I go along and I don't really think about what, you know, you talk about doctors being neck down. You know, I think most people think of their health neck down. Um, yeah. And uh, what we're talking about today is actually, um, maybe a bad analogy, splitting open my head here to sort of the idea that brain health is really important. Yeah, I mean, that's been the motivation to basically uh, produce and direct and write these series of podcasts, you know, for both of us, because I think we both just had that little epiphany, you know, the, the last podcast we did, which was we all take our brain for granted because we assume that we're okay and our brain's okay, but you could be diminishing gradually and not notice that because right. you can't notice gradual diminishing things because... It's like your your survival ego says, that's not important. <laughs> that's not important. I'm okay. <laughs> right. Because otherwise, what are you left with? Mm, yeah, wow. And, okay, so we've been talking about brain stuff and brains are important. And where are we going with this? What's up next uh, with the, the next three podcasts? Well, I mean, if stress is the worst thing, then I think having a calm, nourished, healthy brain would be a good idea. Hmm. And by removing all as much of the don'ts as you can and getting into as much of the do's as you can, uh, that you can confidently uh, expect and experience, you know, a more consistently robust and resilient you, which is your brain and a lot of other things too. Yeah. Wow. So, um, meditation is the next one. Uh, yeah, we'll get into that in the next podcast. And yeah. a few, that, a whole bunch of other stuff, actually. Yeah, cool. And uh, we'll just uh, leave people hanging <laughs> with, with the next two. <laughs> or we could make the, I don't know, it occurred to me when you were saying that's a lot of information, is that as I, I kind of carry this witness perception around with me everywhere I go to watch, you know, what I'm doing to make sure I don't do anything too foolish or to... Uh, I don't know, edit more helpfully because I've been doing public speaking for, I don't know, 30 something years and I've just sort of learned to watch myself while I do things. Sure. As I've watched myself do this podcast, I'm like, if I was new to this, I'd probably want to listen to this two or three times, you know, once to just get a sense of it and then start with the do's, maybe listen to it again and start sneaking up on the dotes. And then again, when you're committed to just, you know, total health. Yeah. Dig in. Well, it, it's, um, as I said at the beginning of the podcast, this is kind of like the, uh, you know, we just knocked on the door uh, to the rabbit hole of uh, <laughs> brain health and we've taken the step off and we're sliding down, I think. Mm -hmm. that's, that's kind of the way I, I see it. So um, I think that wraps up uh, today's episode. Absolutely. So, uh, like I said, this wraps up today's episode of Fusion Health Radio and we want to hear from you. You can search for Fusion Health Radio on Facebook, where you can leave comments, you can ask Michael questions, and you can offer your own ideas for Fusion Health Radio podcast topics. Uh, Michael likes going down rabbit holes, so please do feed <laughs> his habit. <laughs> you can also find Fusion Health Radio podcasts on iTunes, where you can subscribe and access the complete library of our podcasts. And while you're there, please write us a review. Uh, there was a review I saw the other day, somebody noting the, uh, the sound quality, the audio quality, and how that wasn't necessarily as good. But hopefully, if you're listening to this podcast, um, and if you've been listening the whole time, you'll notice the sound quality is improving, uh, because that's the kind of guy I am. Yeah, we've gone from, I don't know, what was it? Using a phone. Uh, micro recorder basically too now we've got the full podcast set up yeah we're we're legit we're the real deal uh and if you've enjoyed what you've heard today uh please do let us know via facebook or itunes and please share this with someone you know uh, who you'd love to improve their health too 
Thanks for listening. Fusion Health Radio is the health, lifestyle, and mindset podcast featuring Dr. Michael Smith. I'm your host, Anthony Santa, and we'll see you next time. Have a great day. And again, please take care of your brain. (laughs) (laughs) With all this laughing in here, hopefully people will be laughing along with us, Michael. Yep. You have been listening to Fusion Health Radio. Please add your comments or post a question at Facebook slash Fusion Health Radio.